Welcome to the Tank Me Later podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Noah Rubin, and this is going to be a Dynasty Fantasy Basketball podcast. Uh, We're going to start with a series, just kind of recapping all 30 teams in the NBA uh, overall and some of the individual Dynasty relevant players. Uh, We're going to start from the bottom with the worst teams in the league, and that's what this first episode is going to be. It's going to be talking about the Pistons, the Spurs, and the Rockets, and it's featuring Matt Lawson, uh, Fantasy Basketball International. You can find him at NBA Dynasty ADP on Twitter. Really, he's one of the biggest names, if not the biggest, in Dynasty Fantasy Basketball in the industry. Uh, but he's still incredibly gracious and is um, able to give me some of his time as well as on Twitter, be active in supporting up-and-coming content creators, especially in the Dynasty space. He has no problem sharing uh knowledge advice as well as just kind of sharing your work uh, with his followers which we get into a little bit of that um, throughout this episode while also getting into some great content so without further ado here's the first episode Welcome to episode one, the first episode of the Tank Me Later podcast. We'll be discussing Dynasty Hoops, Dynasty Basketball's kind of starting with recapping some teams. Uh, I'm sure as we get closer to draft time, we'll definitely get really in-depth with that. Uh, But for the first episode, I brought on a Dynasty Basketball legend, one of the biggest names of Dynasty Hoops today, Matt Lawson. You can find him at NBA Dynasty ADP on Twitter. Matt, how are you doing today? No, I'm doing great, and I'm so excited to be here on your first episode. And I mean, let me tell you, when I started doing Dynasty Basketball, there was like literally no podcasts. Uh, there was barely any rankings out there that you could find. Maybe people would do them at the beginning of the season. Um, and it's a great time to be alive because we're entering now the Dynasty season. I don't even call it off season because it, it is <laughs> Dynasty season that we are entering now that the NBA regular season has ended. Uh, and it's thrilling because there are just so many new content creators, uh, so many new projects like this. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be here today with you. Yeah. And you mentioned when you got your start with Dynasty Basketball, did you immediately start getting into Dynasty or did you have a phase with just like one year leagues before that? Like, how did you get started? Yeah, I started playing fantasy basketball, I think, gosh, probably back in like 2004 or so. Um, it was it was when I was in college. I, I think I first started playing. I was playing a lot of different kinds of fantasy leagues with buddies. Um, so, you know, we're, go- we're going back, you know, uh, days of Gerald Wallace, Sean Marion, Andre Karolinko, you know, being uh, big time nine cat stars. Um, and it, it's been an interesting evolution because I kind of kept playing after that. I enjoyed it. I, I probably played a little bit more fantasy football than anything else. But then ultimately, um, it, I think it was in 2014, I decided that uh, with some of the, pe- the guys that I had done a long time fantasy football league in Dynasty with uh, some of them and a few extras that hadn't played in that league, I was going to try to form a uh, Dynasty NBA league. Um, we drafted that back in 2014. And that was uh, a completely unique experience for me. I'd done Dynasty, but I just hadn't done it in the fantasy basketball space. Uh, that team, they, that league is still going, uh, which is which is pretty great. Um, all the way back to 2014, I expected to keep going for a lot longer. But since then, I've, I've joined a lot more other leagues. I'm a commissioner of a lot of other leagues, and uh, it's just kind of grown as a hobby from there. Yeah, and I saw your tweet, I guess, kind of talked about it on Twitter a few weeks ago with your first Dynasty startup. So you got Kevin Love, first Rudy Gobert, that's, I mean, Rigo Bear 13th round, Joel Embiid 7th round. That's 
it's just looking back, it's just so cool to see those names going so late. It was just so interesting to me because I think I said on Twitter, my first one started in 2019. So obviously there's no chance of getting those guys that late, but it's fun to see those kind of steals getting those guys that late. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember going all the way back then, you know, Rudy Gobert was a late first round pick that, you know, it's kind of skinny actually coming into the league. He filled in pretty quickly. Um, and I don't, there was, you know, the idea of, okay, well maybe this guy can be something, but we've just seen so many European big men come over and, you know, they're soft or they, you know, they, they just don't really fit into the NBA game that well. So there really weren't that, those kinds of, uh, you know, ambitions for him, uh, even though there were some early reports that off season that he was actually going to be something kind of special. And I, I got Zach Levine late in that draft yeah. too. Uh, because Levine was a total project coming out of UCLA. Uh, there, he was raw. He had incredible athleticism, which you know we saw in the dunk contest and all the great in-game dunks that he's had across his career. Uh, but the idea of him becoming a you know top-level on-ball creator, um, him even developing really into more than kind of maybe a catch-and-shoot, you know put back dunk kind of guy. It, it just didn't seem like it was plausible at the time. And, you know, they obviously had that run of him in Minnesota, tears his ACL, he ends up moving on to the Bulls and, and the rest is history. Uh, but it just kind of shows you that there's all these different kinds of career arcs. And Embiid is a great example too, because there was a stage at that point where, you know, he hadn't played for a couple of years entering his NBA career. Um, and there was reason to believe that maybe he was just never really ever going to play. And I think we're kind of at that stage right now with Zion Williamson, where everyone sees the talent, but we're saying to ourselves, okay, is this guy ever really going to see the court? Is he going to go the path of Greg Oden, or is he going to go the path of Joel Embiid and figure it out? Um, and you had guys like Steph Curry and Bradley Beal around that time, Beal around that time, uh, where he had repeated stress fractures. It looked like he was never going to get going. Uh, Curry had recurrent ankle issues early in his career. Um, so it's always kind of up, up in the air with some of these young guys. You never really know how it's going to work out. And that's the beauty of Dynasty, that you take chances on guys. In, in hindsight, it seems like, oh, well, everyone knew that Bradley Beal or Steph Curry or Joel Embiid were going to be NBA superstars. Uh, but those moments early on in their careers, it, it can be pretty dicey. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, oh, NBA in the seventh round, even if you had to wait two years, I think it's paid off okay. But if, uh, so we're talking about now the Dynasty 30, uh, a league you started, I guess, probably eight months ago ish. I don't remember exactly when we drafted, but I'm honored to have been a part of that. But uh, Dynasty, 30 team Dynasty league with just a bunch of analysts. Uh, how did that kind of get started? So I got approached by uh, Zach Hanchu, uh, your colleague at NBC Sports Edge, and also Michael Wa Michael Waterloo from The Athletic, who does a lot of their fantasy baseball content. And uh, the two of them had the idea of doing an analyst uh, league. Um, and it, when they came to me and Rhett Bauer, uh, because they knew that we had experience not only in Dynasty, but being commissioners, uh, Rhett and I looked at it and said, OK, you know, I mean, I think there's there's definitely a place for this, because as far as I know, there are not any analyst dynasty leagues that exist. There's obviously a number of analyst leagues uh, that pop up every single year, like the 30 deep league or you know, various different platforms have you know expert leagues, analyst leagues that they'll do every year. Uh, but this was something a little different because we wanted to be able to do a dynasty league. And, and as I usually do, I said, well, if we're going to do it, let's go big and let's get 30 analysts in here. Because honestly, once you hit 30 analysts, you've hit a lot of the fantasy basketball analyst community. And I thought it could be a good way to be able to not only bring in people who normally play Dynasty, but also some people who don't. Um, and to create some content around Dynasty leagues uh, that can get people talking and and get, give an opportunity for people to be able to create more content around Dynasty. So it, it's been a great experience so far. We had a great first season, and I'm looking forward to this first offseason and rookie draft coming up later. 
Yeah, because you have the sixth best odds, so it looks like you'll be hoping that Orlando ends up winning the lottery. But along with that, guys like Anthony Edwards, Jordan Poole, Wendell Carter, Mark Williams, and then Lonzo Ball sitting on your IR. Uh, so, I mean, you have a number of guys that are going to be really good really quickly, just kind of hoping that lottery shakes out in your favor. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting year because I, I, right out of the gate, Anthony Edwards in the first month really didn't look like himself. Uh, but then after that, after the Carl Anthony Towns injury, I mean, he hit a new level. Uh, there were stretches of the season where I think he looked every bit of the NBA superstar that we hoped Anthony Edwards was going to be. It was an inconsistent year from Jordan Poole, but inconsistency is kind of the one consistent thing that we get from Jordan Poole. <laughs> he obviously still has uh, the ability to get very hot for long stretches of games or months. Um, and I think that's going to continue going forward with him. He's really an, an interesting uh, fantasy player in that way because he can be so dominant in points, threes, uh, free throw percentage. And, you know, when he gets the opportunity within the Warriors offense, you can even get some assists. And we've seen that pop when Curry's been out of the lineup. Uh, but the big the big win for me on the season was getting Mark Williams where I did. I think Mark Williams going forward could easily be kind of a top 50 nine-cat staple um, if he continues on the trajectory that we saw when the Hornets finally played him this year. Uh, not only does he give you those traditional big man stats where you're getting big field goal percentage, rebounds, and blocks, but the nice thing about Mark Williams is that his free throw percentage is usually up in the upper 70s, so it just doesn't kill you the way that you get with a lot of big men, uh, which gives you a little bit more flexibility in your build to not have have to try to accommodate um, kind of a punt worthy free throw percentage from your big man. So I don't know if you used your kind of normal general dynasty strategy when you entered into this league, uh, but what is kind of your approach when you're starting a new league at this point? Yeah, it really varies. You know, I have a lot of leagues. What I do now, uh, most of my leagues are uh, draft only dynasty leagues, which is something that I I think I came up with. I, I don't know if they exist too many, in too many other places, but we have a bunch of them at Fantasy Basketball International, where essentially you draft your league, and in the off season, transactions are open. You can add, you can make trades throughout the off season, but rosters lock at the beginning of the season, and then you have maybe one injury replacement during the season that you can make. But otherwise, you're kind of locked in. So it's a little bit more like a best ball, even though it's a categories mm -hmm. league. Um, and with those, I experiment with a lot of different things. I have teams that are very win now oriented. I have some younger ones and. Um, they've all had varying success. Um, and that's kind of the beauty of Dynasty, that so many different approaches will all exist in the same league. Now, if I'm in a startup, I usually just care about getting value. I don't care if it's old, young, anything in between. What I'm looking for is the best value at that spot in a startup draft. Because if I start focusing on need, if I start focusing on, oh, I just want to be able to build uh, an older team or a younger team, I'm going to end up inevitably ignoring some of the value that's on the board because I can never predict how it's going to fall. You get into drafts and all of a sudden everyone is going young and you might've had that plan too, but if you are not willing to be flexible in that moment and say, well, I need, I need to take the value. I could win this league for the next three years because everyone's passing on all these guys who are very much in their prime, have prime years ahead of them. And, and I'm just going to be dominating all these teams that are chasing, you know, 19 and 20 year old rookies. Uh, and I've had moments like that in startups where all of a sudden the plan shifts, even after the first pick, where it's like, well, I can't pass up on that value. Because honestly, the, what you come out with in your startup draft is likely not going to be what your team looks like even after the first season. Uh, because trades are such a big component and trades are where you get a competitive edge in the dynasty league, it's really important to consider that you're just acquiring assets and value in the startup. You're not trying to build a fully formed team. Um, and I think the, some of the biggest mistakes that people can make in a startup is trying to say, well, I need to get a center this round, uh, but I don't like any of them, but I'm just going to take one anyway. 
or you know a point guard or anything like that. Um, or I have to stay young because the rest of my roster was young, even though I think this is incredible value on a guy who's 27. Uh, making avoiding those kind of pitfalls and trying to come out with your fully formed team in the draft or sticking with your strategy that you came into the draft with are where people can make big mistakes. So for me, it's all about flexibility and finding value where it falls to you. And you mentioned the guys that just go for 19 and 20 year olds. I'm definitely the guy that is a sucker for 19 year olds and 20 year olds just trying to get the youngest team possible as I'm sure you saw this season, but a lot of those guys can be found on the three worst teams in the league. Uh, which is who we're going to talk about today with Detroit, San Antonio, and Houston. Uh, we're going to start with Detroit. Uh, they have the best lottery odds. They can pick no worse than fifth, um, but they have a 14% chance to land Victor Wembanyama, basically signed, sealed, and delivered that he will be at the number one pick. Uh, but right now, the face of their franchise is Cade Cunningham. He missed most of the season. I believe he played like 12 games and then missed the rest of the year. Should be ready uh, for the first game. Matt, how early in Dynasty startup would you take him? Well, for Cade, um, I have him as a guy that I would be willing to take and you know, even as early as the top 10 in categories leagues, top 12-ish uh, in points leagues, uh, because the stat set is so good. I mean, and we saw that at the end of his rookie season where Cade was putting up obviously huge scoring numbers. Um, and But on top of that, he's a good rebounder. He gets you uh, three-pointers. He gets you a, a large amount of assists, even more so than I think I projected of him coming out of Oklahoma State. His assist rate was phenomenal as a rookie. Um, and then you also get steals and blocks from him and strong free throw percentage. So really the only knock in his fantasy stat set is that like many rookie perimeter players, his field goal percentage was pretty rough his first year. But He's now spent this entire year reworking his shot, and that's the big thing that he's been working with in this off season or in this season where he hasn't been able to play the entire time because of the shin surgery. Um, I, I expect Kate Cunningham to have a huge breakout season next year, and I think he's going to be well worth the investment in Dynasty because of that. Yeah, I, he is, in my opinion, I think coming out of Oklahoma State, I had him as like the most complete prospect, arguably since LeBron. Like, I think it's just he can do everything. The weaknesses that you mentioned are just weaknesses that young guards have with the field goal percentage and turnovers. The turnovers probably aren't going anywhere, just playing point guard, but uh, field goal percentage gets up and everything else kind of across the board. And yeah, definitely a guy that can be at the top of leagues. They had another rookie this year, or I guess two that were pretty spectacular um, in different ways. The one that was actually good for category leagues was Jalen Duran when they actually kind of started him, because obviously at the beginning of the season, he wasn't necessarily getting all the minutes. And then there was a stretch where he was like the guy. And then they were like, you know what? Let's go James Wiseman and Marvin Bagley. We'll just leave Jalen Duran on the bench. Do you think that's like them saying, oh, we know he's good. Let's kind of see what we have in these guys. And Jalen Duran's going to start next season. Or is there legit concern that Wiseman could start at center next season with Bagley next to him? From everything that I understand, the, the Pistons' idea when they brought in Wiseman was that they needed to get him uh, into an accelerated development stage because Jalen Duran, just in those last two seasons in Detroit and at Memphis, has played more games than James Wiseman has in the last four years. 
And that's not even a joke. That's just the reality. Yeah. I mean, Wiseman missed almost his entire college season, missed an entire season uh, with the Warriors prior to this season, uh, had, had stretches where he was just down in the G League during a lot of those years. He hasn't played a lot of NBA basketball. And you could see when he got to play this year that, you know, all the flashes of that offensive ability for a player his size, the skill level, the, the fluidity of movement, it's all there. And those flashes are very real. Uh, but his complete lack of feel defensively is also there. And he just needs reps. He needs the experience of being put into pick and rolls and having to have a, a sense of where he needs to be positionally on the court to see things ahead of when they're happening instead of just reacting to them. Uh, and that only comes from the opportunity to play if it doesn't come naturally to you. And it clearly does not come naturally to him, uh, despite all of his athletic gifts. I think the Pistons have to knew that they had to make a decision this offseason because he is extension eligible. He's on a big cap number in the final year of his rookie deal, but they needed to determine whether they're going to give him a, an extension, which I think is going to be unlikely because the number is probably just not going to be high enough for him to want to accept it. I think he's probably going to go through this season um, with the idea that maybe he'll try to get a new contract after the 23-24 season, get it in the 2024 offseason. Um, and then maybe it looks like a contract like Marvin Bagley's. Maybe they move on from him entirely. But Jalen Duran is clearly the more complete and uh, I, I think safer uh, big man of the future for the Detroit Pistons. I, I think they got him significant development time more than they expected because Bagley was out for long stretches at the beginning of the season. That forced Duran more into the lineup, also with the injuries to Bohan Bogdanovich. This is an opportunity for Wiseman to be kind of accelerate and try to play a little bit of catch up. And I think that's what they were trying to do. They also had to mix in Bagley more because, like I said, he had been missed a large portion of the season. So I'm not worried. I think in the long run, Jalen Duran is the center of the future for this team. Um, I think that they are doing what they can right now with the flexibility they have of being a bad team to take some of these highly talented kind of second draft players where they failed in their first opportunity coming out of the draft, the RJ Hamptons, the Marvin Bagley's, the James Wiseman's, give them the chance to be able to play in a different environment, see if they can develop them a little bit, see if there's anything there. And if there isn't, they're going to move on. Uh, but when you're a bad team like this, taking those kinds of swings to see if the talent just needs needed a little bit more time to bake is a good way to be able to maybe find a diamond in the rough for a cheap price. And I think that's what the Pistons are trying to do right now. And if it doesn't work out kind of sort of how it did, it improves their lottery odds. So now they have that. I mean, that was ultimately the goal for a lot of the bad teams this season. But with the other rookie they had, Jaden Ivey, the fifth pick, um, wasn't great in category leagues as a rookie, but over the past or the last two weeks of the season, averaged 21.7 points, 7.3 assists, 2.5 threes per game. Uh, the main issue, obviously, is the field goal percentage and the turnovers. Um do you see him as a guy that like how high do you see his ceiling? Is he a top hundred guy, top fifty guy when he really gets going? Like what do you see? What's interesting with Ivy is that I think there were a lot of questions about him as a prospect coming in that he answered this year. Uh, in that way, Kate Cunningham's injury was a blessing in disguise because it gave Ivy a ton of reps as an on-ball creator, a ton of pick and roll reps. And you saw his playmaking ability make a dramatic leap forward, which tells me that he can be a pretty elite secondary creator next to Kate Cunningham and that both Ivy and Cunningham can play off ball with each other, uh, which is going to be huge because Ivy's three point shooting also took a huge step forward this year. Um, you know, he was 34.3% on pull up threes on 2.7 attempts, uh, being able to take pull up threes and to, to hit them at a relatively consistent or at least league average rate as a rookie uh, for someone who really struggled with that consistency at Purdue, that was a big step forward. And he was even better on catch and shoot three. 
threes. Uh, his three-point shooting was a really big development this year. The problem and the reason that his field goal percentage is so poor is that he doesn't really have much of a middle game yet. Uh, I think he's going to be need to develop a better floater, and that would really help because he does have a lot of scoring gravity. Once he gets into the lane, once he get, blows by his first defender, he can get to the rim in an instant. He is a walking rim attempt. Uh, he got to the rim at will throughout this entire season. The problem is he couldn't finish there. Uh, he was 55% at the rim, uh, which is pretty dreadful. And that's something that naturally improves uh, with NBA guards, um, especially ones that have the athleticism that Ivy does. And he has relatively good size for an NBA guard as well. So I'm not that concerned about it. You've seen this in a lot of star NBA guards careers where initially as rookies and as second year players, they're terrible at the rim. Uh, that's what Ivy was this year. I think that improves. I think his field goal percentage comes up with it. And you even saw in that post all-star period that he was shooting 81.3% from the line on 4.8 attempts a game. Uh, that's a nice clip. And if he can get to that range, if he can be in the low 80s and free throws um, and get to the line as much as he did, which is another strong indicator of future star performance that he was able to get draw so many fouls, uh, I think he could have a really nice fantasy player here. So I wouldn't let some of the warts that are common in rookies, in rookie guards especially, uh, deter you from viewing the upside of Ivy long term. I think there's a lot of it here. I mean, he, this was a kid who was 97th percentile in potential assists this season. And as good as his assist numbers were, they would have been much better on a team where he actually had guys who could shoot and knock down shots uh, when they were getting passes from him. And he just didn't have that this year uh, because Bohan Bogdanovich missed a large stretch of the year uh, because Kate Cunningham missed almost the entire year. Um, and I think the Pistons will continue to add some spacing around uh, in this lineup. So, Players like Ivy can really take advantage of their physical gifts and their ability to be able to get uh, go downhill and get to the rim. And you mentioned that Ivy really benefited from Kate Cunningham's absence. The other card that really did was Killian Hayes, who kind of showed that, hey, he can actually play in the leagues. I think the first couple of seasons, it was a lot of question marks like, is he a bust? Like, where, where does he fit in? And with Cade back in the lineup, he probably fits in more as a six-man role. Uh, but he had a good season. Do you think that's something that he can kind of build off of and be kind of a, a deeper league guy in the future? I think the hard part with Killian is that uh, despite some flashes in December where the shot started to fall, uh, that just didn't continue as the year went on. And he really struggled to score in the half court, which he also did in his first couple seasons in the NBA. Uh, I think right now Killian's looking at uh, the hope that he can be a backup point guard. Um, be, maybe be that kind of six man. But the problem is he's so ball dominant that he's a difficult fit in a lot of lineups. You can't play him next to Jaden Ivey, Kate Cunningham, because he doesn't really have a role unless the ball is in his hands and he's not that efficient when it is in his hands. That doesn't mean to say that he can't eventually get there, but after three seasons of proof, it just doesn't seem like he's going to be a consistent outside shooter. And that really is the swing skill for his career. If it could be someone who could knock down catch and shoot three pointers, uh, his defensive ability, his playmaking ability um, as a secondary playmaker he, he could be a really interesting player he could even have clothes because he really is a strong defender um, but I think a lot of that's still up in the air the Pistons still like him I think they'll get an opportunity to be in the guard rotation next year along with Cade and Jaden Ivey uh, but we're definitely at a point where he needs to make a significant leap forward in his half court efficiency uh, to be able to maintain a strong role in the NBA yeah and that's that's it for Detroit we'll move on to San Antonio Detroit you know, just has their fingers crossed at this point for the lottery. But either way, like regardless of where they pick, they're going to get a future star or a really good player to fill alongside. They're already really young core. Uh, they have a number of guys. They have a future. It's just can they get the head coaching hire right? I think that's another factor um, 
So we'll see who they end up with. But moving on to San Antonio, who has the head coach, if he sticks around, doesn't choose to retire. Uh, but they have a couple other young guys and then another lottery guy coming in. So they have the second best odds at the number one pick, can pick no worse than sixth. Uh, we'll talk about my favorite guy on the team right now, Devin Vassell, who had knee issues this season, only played, I think, 38 games, I want to say. Um, was really good on the floor when he was on the floor. Um, but between the injuries, um, he wasn't necessarily able to play as much as we would have liked. Uh, but he was he fit in well as like a first or second scoring option. The defensive numbers dropped off just a tad, uh, but he was still able to finish 80th in nine-cat rankings per basketball monster. Uh, assuming he stays healthy, but if they bring in another probably top-tier scoring option, do you see his game adjusting well to maybe less shots and more defensive numbers and more efficiency like it was before? Yeah, I think that's the vision for Devin Sell. He will be a part of the Spurs' next playoff team, and it's hard to say that with certainty for really anyone else on this roster. It's possible, but I think Vassell is the only guy that you can look at and say, in five years, uh, this guy is going to be a, a part of the Spurs' core. Uh, Vassell is a really interesting stat set in that he kind of you know has the ability to both bring you good, strong three-pointers and also some defensive stats, even though we saw a little bit of regression in those rates this year as he had a larger offensive role, uh, you know, Despite playing 31 minutes a night, he stuck at 1.1 steals per game, uh, which is the same number he was at in only 27 minutes the year prior. Uh, but I think this is something that we see uh, when usage rates increase and players have larger offensive demands. It's the same thing that happened with Mikhail Bridges, who's kind of a comparable player in some ways. Uh, and when he went over to the Nets, his uh, steal and block rates dipped as his offensive load increased. And I think we saw a little bit of that with the cell this year. It probably isn't the ideal role for him to be shooting as much as he was this past year. I mean, having him at almost 16 attempts per game, maybe that that's where he peaks out in the future. Um, and I think, you know, given that he was only 22 years old, this is not his prime. So maybe that is where his peak ends up, that he ends up with usage at that level. But ultimately, he's going to be a little bit more efficient as he enters his prime years. But I do think we're going to see uh, the steal and block rates come back up as the Spurs add more on-ball creation around him, which is what they desperately need because this team just does not have that right now. And that's why it's difficult to be, unlike the Pistons, where you can look at it and say, okay, they've got two on-ball creators and Kate Cunningham and Jaden Ivey. Um, those are building blocks. The, the Spurs really don't have that. that that's not Vassell's game necessarily. He can do a little bit of it, but he's not going to be a guy that you're going to run your offense through. He's not an offensive engine. Um, they're the team that could obviously benefit from adding someone like Scoot Henderson, who I think would immediately kind of be that offensive engine for them, uh, who would make everything fit in really well with what they already have on their roster going forward. Um, and that's what's really interesting about this team because they have so much in flux. They have so few players that are even under contract next year. Um, and they don't, have, they don't have significant money paid to almost anyone on this roster going forward. It makes you really wonder um, how many moves they could make going forward if they're willing to be aggressive because they have a large amount of draft picks. Are they going to, going to want to accelerate or are we going to have another year, depending on who their lottery pick is, uh, where they're playing for lottery balls. And then that, that could be a frustrating aspect with Vassell where he gets sat down because he's got an ankle injury that they just don't want to test him on. Um, so he sits for an extended portion. Uh, we could be kind of in that Oklahoma City territory that we were before with the Spurs for a little bit longer because uh, they're playing for uh, draft picks rather than playing uh, to make the playoffs. 
Yeah, I'd say the other guy that I really like, I know you mentioned that he's probably the only guaranteed player five years from now is on the roster. The other guy that I could definitely see kind of fitting that same mold is Jeremy Sohan. I believe it's Sohan. I, say, I used to say Sohan all the time, but I think it's Sohan. Uh, average 11 points, 5.3 rebounds, 2.5 assists, 0.8 steals, 0.4 blocks, and 0.6 triples as a rookie. 56 games, 26 minutes per game. I think he has all the upside in the world to kind of fit in as a complete nine-cap player, contribute in every category. Uh, I don't think he necessarily showed a ton as a rookie because he averaged less than one three, one steal, and one block per game. But uh, how high do you see as his ceiling? The ceiling's really high because he's kind of that ideal uh, big, uh, skilled uh, wing, power wing size uh, that the NBA is looking for. You know, this is a guy who, 19 years old, is six nine, listed at 6'9", 230, uh, but he has a handle uh, and he can run the ball through him. And we saw the Spurs do that at points this year uh, where he was kind of out there as a de facto point guard. Uh, the big swing skills for him, like so many young players, shooting. Um, he really struggled from three at points this year. Um, post All-Star, he shot 18% from three. Uh, and that was only in eight games, obviously, because he didn't play a lot down the stretch. But even pre-All-Star, in the bulk of a season where he's playing 48 games, we're talking about 26% uh, from three. And that's going to have to improve, just as it does for almost any player in the modern NBA. If you're not going to be able to shoot from the outside and you're going to play power forward, uh, it makes you a very difficult fit unless your center is going to be spacing it. And maybe that's Victor Wembanyama. Maybe Zach Collins continues to improve from three, and that, that's someone who they look at foundationally. But uh, Sohan, the real idea behind him is the defensive versatility that he brings because this is a guy uh, who, despite his size, can move well enough laterally to be able to defend a lot of perimeter players. And that gives you so much flexibility with his switchability. I think that's going to guarantee him a lot of minutes and opportunity to develop his shot and develop his offensive game, find a role in an NBA offense, because defensively he could be very, very good. Uh, the big question for us in fantasy is, is that going to convert into any kind of defensive playmaking? Is he going to have a decent steal or block rate going forward? Because we didn't see that this year. Um, and it wasn't necessarily what we saw at Baylor either. I mean, the steals were a little bit better. The blocks were a little bit better at Baylor. Uh, I still think there's potential for that. A lot of these guys, young guys, either take the route of being super aggressive defensively and they rack up a ton of fouls or in Sohan's case I think he was trying to keep himself on the court and play within himself a little bit defensively and play smart so eventually as his defensive uh, feel catches up I, I think you could all of a sudden see the playmaking start to emerge too because he certainly has the physical gifts for it and I think he is a smart player yeah and I think he has the mentality to want to improve when we saw that when his free throws weren't going in he had no problem shooting a one-handed free throw which was would have been <clears throat> probably too embarrassing for a lot of young players, especially, but he had no problem doing it. Maybe that's just something that I love and will latch on to as a reason to like him and his potential and his growth. Um, but you mentioned Zach Collins, who Greg Popovich said he's going to start at center next season. So if they get Wemby, maybe they start the power forward. Maybe they just bring him off the bench. I don't know. Zach Collins is the guy, apparently. How much do you buy into that? And if he is a starting center, is I want to say over the past – let me look. Yeah, last two months of the season, he was 37th and nine cat per basketball monster. Is he approaching that number again over the course of a full season? 
I mean, Zach Collins coming out, uh, you know, going in my way back machine and thinking about him coming out. I loved him as a prospect, even though he played a limited amount of Gonzaga. You just saw the outlines of a fantasy monster because the block rate was insane. And then he could just never stay healthy. And he was stuck coming off of the bench in Portland. They were trying to use him as a spacing power forward because he has some ability to be able to shoot from outside. And it wasn't really until this season that the Spurs kind of, I think, found the sweet spot of what Zach Collins should be. Um, and it's encouraging. I mean, post-All-Star break, he's shooting 39% from three across 15 games. Um, and even before that, it was around 36%. Uh, the volume is not super high, but it's good enough that it at least creates uh, an element to be able to go five out uh, in the future with lineups uh, with Collins. And that could be so valuable. I think if they do get Weminyama, which is obviously only a 14% chance, chance, so it's not really even you know worth worrying about too much. And this is true for everyone, though. I think all NBA teams are more likely to be put Weminyama, especially early in his career, next to a more traditional center, uh, because Weminyama has even said, and his team has said, that their goal is not to put on a bunch of weight onto him. They think that's a mistake, given the size of his frame, how tall he is. That adding more weight is only going to put more stress onto his feet, onto his, onto his lower body, uh, and that's where they've seen historically that a lot of uh, very large centers can kind of fall apart. And if you watch Wembenyama play, he's not an interior player. He can duck inside, he can get put back dunks. Um, he, he can play inside and flash inside, but his game is more perimeter oriented. Um, and he, he likes to use his handle a little bit more than just be a back-to-the-basket post-up guy. So everyone worrying about, well, what's going to happen to Jalen Duran or Zach Collins uh, or Alperin Shangoon if one of these teams wins number one overall and gets Wembenyama. I think at least initially and maybe even in the long term, uh, you're going to see a lot more Wembenyama playing at the four uh, because of his ability to be able to shoot from the outside and just the nature of his game. That's going to be a better fit offensively. And then defensively, you're just going to be adding together two really good rim protecting players um, in a lot of those cases. And, and we've seen that work in Cleveland. We've seen that work with two bigs in other places. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a fit problem. Uh, so I see Collins as a pretty good investment for next year. It seems unlikely that um, even if they get Wembenyama, that he's going to be unseated. And if they don't, there's not a center that's going to come into play in the lottery that's going to be taking that spot from him. The Spurs do have some amount of cap space. They can play around with that. they got Charles Bassey coming back off of injury uh, on a guaranteed contract, at least for next season. Uh, so there'll be some degree of competition. But I think Collins has earned the opportunity to be able to expand on what he showed for the Spurs late in this year. And I expect him to be the starting center playing minutes in the high 20s throughout next year for them. Yeah. And that's honestly probably the main guys that are going to do a lot in category leagues. There's two other guys I want to talk about. Uh, Kelvin Johnson who led the team in scoring with 22 points per game, hit 2.1 triples per game, basically didn't do much else for category leagues. Uh, Does he have any upside to make him worth more? I mean, he finished 165, according to Basketball Monster this season. Is that just kind of his ceiling, like maybe like top 150 if he has a really, really good season? Um, But I don't know if he's the focal point of an offense on a playoff team. So where where does he go from there? Yeah, kind of, kind of like Devin Vassell, but even more so with Keldon Johnson. This is a case of a player uh, who's asked to scale up their offensive game kind of beyond their capabilities. And what we saw with Johnson with the extra defensive attention that he was seeing at the beginning of the year, uh, he lost a lot of confidence. And uh, he went into a deep drought uh, shooting from three that extended from November through February. Uh, got a little bit back into it in a groove in March and April, even, even though that was only, you know, 
uh, around eight games that he played, uh, but the three-point shot completely fell off. And that was the thing that we liked about Johnson at the end of the 21-22 season. He was shooting at a higher volume. He was hitting at a decent clip, but I think that was partially because he was shooting more open threes and he was shooting a lot of contested threes at the beginning of this year. In in an actual built-out Spurs roster, I don't think that's going to be his role. Uh, and what he does really well is drive in a straight line and drive through people uh, because he's got a big chest, a big body. He's able to get to the rim and go through people. And I think that's something that he can continue to do, especially on a team that has more creation around him uh, where he's attacking closeouts and, and just getting to the rim um, and then hitting some catch and th- shoot threes that are less contested. So I think he'll get better than this. Um, he's never been a big steal or block guy. Uh, that would be great, but I just don't think that's coming at this point. Uh, and he's on a modest contract long term that I think will keep him on the Spurs for a while because the NBA always wants more wings. Uh, and if you have one on a good contract like the Spurs do, they're just going to hold on to him for a while. So his role should be fairly stable. He just needs to get more into an offensive role that fits his skills. Uh, and I think that will happen over time as the Spurs add more talent around them. And then the other guy on the Spurs who popped this season after the traded away DeJounte Murray was Trey Jones, who finished in the top 100, uh, top 75 over the last two months after being outside the top 300 in his first two seasons. Um, He got the starting point guard job, did really well with it. Obviously, I think the arrival of Scoot Henderson would erase all of that. But if they don't draft a point guard, he can probably start again next season. But I'm not sure that he profiles as – a long-term starting point guard. I mean, his, we see his brother as a excellent sixth man for Memphis, and he can shoot a little bit better than Trey Jones can. Um, if he sticks around as the starting point guard for at least a couple more seasons or one more season, is he a guy that can repeat as a top 100 guy or even you know better than that? I would think that the Spurs are, are going to – bring Trey Jones back. He's a restricted free agent this year. I think they're going to try to sign him to a long-term deal that will lock him in as a high-end backup point guard. Um, and that might he still may start this next year. I mean, and some guy, times guys like that get that opportunity for extended stretches. We saw with, you know, Monty Morris. Uh, you, the, these guys who are probably better suited as backups can, still can be starters for a while and be very productive in fantasy. Uh, but the problem is that if you have an offense that, you know, with Trey Jones having the ball in his hands for most of your possessions um, as a point guard, there's limitations to that because the outside shooting isn't there. And even if it does get there, he doesn't do enough on ball uh, to be able to create his own shot that I, I think he can really be the driving force of an offense. Now, maybe because he's a good defensive player and you have really good creation on the wing, uh, you had a star creator on the wing, that could be something where Trey Jones could be a starting point guard, uh, especially if he develops his three-point shot because he, he's a smart player. He's a, a good distributor of the ball. And I, I think that swing skill really is the outside shooting, which you, you mentioned has improved for his brother. It's possible it could improve for him as well. We saw after the break, I mean, it was only in 16 games, but he shot 38% from three. Um, that would be a big development. And, and the volume is not huge, but I, I think that that could be something that grows for him since he's still a relatively young player. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, I think the Spurs have a lot of opportunity to shake up this roster this year. They they only have around 10 players that are on guaranteed deals for next season, and they're going to be bringing in draft picks both at the top of the draft and a couple of uh, decent second-round picks that they have as well. I think they're going to attempt to try out Malachi Branham a little bit more on ball, which you saw later in the season as well. So there could be stretches where Malachi is getting that opportunity instead of Trey Jones, uh, just so they can see what they have in Branham and give them the reps because there's a little bit more three-level scoring potential uh, with Malachi 
Malachi Branham than there is with Trey Jones, even if uh, Malachi Branham is in a traditional or natural point guard. Yeah. And the Spurs are just a really interesting situation just because I think they're the only team in the league without a guy that you can point to and say, hey, they're building around this guy. I have 29 other teams have somebody that is kind of the focus, but the Spurs have a bunch of like second or third options that can surround a franchise guy, which would make this an ideal landing spot for a lot of the top prospects. Uh, but if we're looking to the another team in Texas that is picking at the top of the draft with Houston, uh, they're picking, or excuse me, they have third best odds that the other team with a 14% chance uh, at the number one pick can pick no worse than seventh. They have a couple other guys that are really high draft picks in Jalen Green, Jabari Smith, and then a couple of other lottery players, Tari Eason, Alperin Shengun, and then Kevin Porter Jr. is their starting point guard right now. Let's talk about Jalen Green first because I have this issue where every time there's a shooting guard that can create his own shot, I immediately say that they are Bradley Beal. And if they Mm -hmm. average 30 points per game, that they can be a first or second round value. Um, Jalen Green hasn't reached that efficiency yet, but I mean, Beal didn't get there until John Wall was gone and it was like year five or six. Um, Does Jalen Green kind of get inside the top? I mean, I think he finished – 198 this season, so he's inside the top 200. But how quickly does he rise? Does he get there? How many years does it take? Like, what does his future look like? I think that in many ways, this was a disappointing year for Jalen Green. What we saw from him at the end of his rookie season suggested a level of efficiency that uh, just didn't carry over into the new season. And even during kind of the silly season period, while there were flashes, he had 30 plus point games, uh, there, there was still kind of that inefficiency in his game uh, and and that suggests that it's not going to happen quite yet. Uh, He just turned 21 years old, and I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity for him to operate in an NBA offense that actually uh, helps him rather than requires him just to create it all on his own. Um, Yes, the Rockets did run some sets, but uh, there was a lot of iso ball. Uh, And I always don't think that the pieces that they had, they did the best job of uh, making them work together. So, with Green, I'm still cautiously optimistic, despite the inefficiency of the first couple of years. And this is something that I'm willing to forgive uh, early career inefficiency when it comes to a really athletic player. Uh, because those guys, because of their athleticism, eventually once it clicks and they start converting that athleticism into uh, NBA skills, you can all of a sudden see huge leaps forward that you didn't expect. And that's something that I could definitely anticipate from Green uh, because he's so physically gifted. And it can blow by just about anybody. If you operate in a more functional NBA, NBA offense, I think that the efficiency could come up with that. And you did see some nice strides toward the end of the year where he was getting to the line more, um, some games where the the assists perked up a little bit, um, and some games where he shot really well um, and got to his spots in mid-range as well. So the flashes have been there. Um, and he could be a guy that in his third year, fourth year, all of a sudden makes that big leap forward where it all kind of comes together for him, uh, both mentally and physically. And he kind of figures out who he's going to be as an NBA player. Yeah. I think there was a quote from Steven Silas just like a few weeks before the season ended, where I think they were just starting to run pick and rolls for uh, KPJ and Jalen Green. He's like, yeah, the assistant coaches have been telling me to do that, but I just want to emphasize ball movement. So we just didn't. But now that we're doing it, it's working really well. And it, it just blew my mind. He didn't even try that for a while. But uh, they're another team that can try and get the head coaching hire right. Uh, I think the initial report said I'm a Udoka and then a bunch of other 
assistant coaches, respect, respected assistant coaches. So I think they're, they're trending in the right direction if one of those guys is able to pan out. Um, but Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, finished 84th in nine cap value, started at point guard uh, the past two seasons, really. I think unless they draft one, he's probably going to start again at point guard next season. Um, over the final two months of the season, he was nearly top 50 in nine cat leagues. He can points, rebounds, assists, steals, threes, a little bit more efficient than Jalen Green. Do you see him as a guy that can stick around as a starting point guard, or is he a guy that probably isn't going to stick around as a point guard for a long time? Yeah, I was on with Josh Lloyd yesterday, and, and he was asking me, who, who are some of the guys who are kind of fool's gold in the 22-23 season, uh, guys who you don't expect to be able to duplicate uh, what they produced this year? And uh, Kevin Porter Jr. was the first one that came to mind for me because I think there's going to be, and there already is, an organizational directive in Houston for them to take a leap forward after being one of the worst teams in the NBA for the last three seasons. And if they're going to do that, that's going to have to involve reducing Kevin Porter Jr.'s role. He is a player who is on a contract going forward that is largely non-guaranteed uh, and is being paid more like a sixth man than he is a starter. And I think ultimately that's probably the role, unless he's going to change what kind of player he is, that he's going to have to be in because he is very on-ball dominant. Um, he, he does lean heavily toward isolation play. And you can see that running a bench unit, uh, being in kind of a microwave instant offense score. He'd be very good at that. Um, and there's plenty of talent here. There's not that that's not the indictment on J, on Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, he ultimately, though, is just a very poor defensive player. Um, and on top of that, a guy who I don't necessarily know is making the other pieces um, in Houston better around him. Um, and if they want to be able to take that step forward with some of their other star players and young prospects, I think that that's the direction they're going to need to take. Now, does that look like James Harden leaving Philadelphia and coming back to Houston like has been rumored? Uh, does it take the form of Scoot Henderson coming in? Or is it the fact that they have $60 million in cap space to bring in someone like Fred Van Vliet? Uh, we'll see with Houston, but I expect them to make big changes because obviously they need to take a different direction after they plateaued a little bit this year. And a lot of their young pieces didn't make the steps forward that they wanted to. And clearly they're not building the foundation of a legitimate NBA defense in any way. Uh, and a lot of these young players are learning habits, especially defensively, that are not going to help them in their careers going forward. That needs to be reversed if this uh, franchise is going to get back uh, to the winning ways that it's been in for most of its existence. Yeah. And if you're looking at the guy who actually is the best playmaker on the team in Alperin Shangun, uh, who is the best fantasy asset on the team, <clears throat> but despite every effort from Steven Silas to try and limit his minutes or his uh, role, finished 83rd, the average is 14.8 points, nine rebounds, 3.9 assists, uh, nearly a steal and a block. Um, you kind of see him sticking around as a top, maybe even getting up to top 75 or higher kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, if Shangun gets minutes, he's going to put up fantasy production. The The issue for him was that, unfortunately, he was in one of the worst defensive environments in the league. And uh, part of that is him. He, he is not a good lateral mover. Um, he's going to struggle uh, if you're going to be putting him in ball screens repeatedly, which teams did. 
but the bigger problem when you watched Houston is that often uh, the perimeter defenders would just get blown by completely, uh, have no ability to be able to recover, and that leaves your center on an island. And we've seen that even with prime Rudy Gobert, that centers can look really awkward and bad in those situations uh, when they're left to make an impossible choice between trying to uh, rush the the ball handler or to be able to stay back on their man to not allow an easy assist. Um, Shengun's going to look awkward in those situations. And I think he became the scapegoat a lot of the time for Silas. Uh, he, there was an accountability that he tried to put onto Shengun for the defensive mistakes of the team that he didn't do with other people, even though you could see many instances where Jabari Smith Jr. was just getting directly blown by, whether it be Jalen Green or Kevin Porter Jr. Uh, they really struggled to stay in front of their man, and they put the back line of that defense into a really awful position. I think that's something that's going to need to change going forward. And and as long as you put Shangun with a strong weak side rim protector, I think he can be part of a good NBA team. We've seen this with Damanis Sabonis uh, to a different degree with Nikola Jokic, where you can kind of have these offensive hub players who give you so much offensively, which, you know, Shangun for a young player was tremendous as an offensive center this year. And they can take away on defense and you can find ways to be able to mask that. I, I think Shangun is a really smart player. And I think that he is making effort on most plays defensively. I think there was frustration all around with that team. So that's really the concern. Is he going to be able to be good enough offensively that it's worth the defensive pain? And can Houston find lineups that actually work to be able to make Shangun worthwhile to be able to keep on the court as a 30-plus minute center? The Rockets' best defensive starting lineup or best defensive lineup featured Kenyon Martin Jr., Tari Eason, and Elperin Shangun. They just barely ever played that. And that's a big indictment of not playing Tari Eason, who I think could be an ideal way to be able to improve the Rockets' defense. Silas just wasn't willing to do that for most of the season. I think we need to see more of Tari Eason going forward if this Houston team is going to develop a competent defense. Yeah, I mean, the big top top of the lottery at some point. So who knows exactly who's going to come in, but if they feature a lineup of Kevin Porter Jr. at point guard, Jalen Green, Tari Eason, Jabari Smith, and Alfred Shingun, that's a very solid starting, very young, solid starting five. Uh, with Eason in a starting role, he's a guy that can provide defensive stats. And I believe he had a couple games where he was able to hit multiple three-pointers. How high is his upside if he's able to move into a starting role, unlike we saw as a rookie? Yeah, Tari Eason has some of the biggest per minute upside of any uh, member of this rookie class, the 2022 NBA draft class. And honestly, he's one of the the most intriguing per minute fantasy producers uh, amongst young players that we have in the entire NBA. Um, And that's because he has an absolutely elite steal rate that alone can drive a ton of fantasy value. Uh, because steals can be so scarce. And on top of that is a really strong block rate as well. So if you saw those big minutes, if you're getting those big stock numbers, giving you some threes, he can do some scoring uh, because he, he does have an ability to be able to drive to the basket. He's a little bit of a bull in the China shop, but he can definitely get there because he's so big. Uh, and I, I think that over time, there's going to be an opportunity for him to be a really impressive uh, NBA starting wing. The, the question is the same reason that he fell in the draft, uh, which was rumored to be character issues and inability to be able to uh, know the, the sets and the plays uh, that they were running at LSU. 
I don't know if I buy into that. And I, I, but I do wonder, you know, because there, there's at least a correlation with how Houston's coaching staff treated him this year, that maybe they weren't completely satisfied uh, with the work that he was putting in uh, or didn't think that he was actually running things and doing things the way that they wanted him to. Uh, hopefully he makes a leap forward in that regard, because I think if he does become a 30 plus minute starting player, uh, there's definitely top 50 fantasy seasons across his prime in his future. And then the other starting forward in that scenario is Jabari Smith, who finished 142 uh, nine cat leagues as a rookie, showed plenty of upside to score, shoot from the rebound, get steals, get blocks. Um, he's a guy, I think his game just fits well as a guy that could be very successful in fantasy. It just didn't necessarily show without a true point guard playing alongside him. Uh, some other guys that just needed to get their own shots, just I think bad environment in Houston that we've talked about. Um, assuming they get the coaching higher correct and that they're able to start building, you know, a team that's ready to get back to the playoffs, is Jabari Smith a guy that can get into, say, the top 50 of nine cat leagues? Definitely. Um, and it all comes down to knocking down shots and getting easier shots. Uh, basketball index shows Jabari Smith Jr. as having a ninth, nine, nine percentile. Uh, openness rating on three-point shots this year. Uh, he was taking contested shots the entire season because the Rockets were doing absolutely nothing to be able to get him in the ball in a good position to be able to get a good look. Um, and that falls on Kevin Porter Jr., Jalen Green, the Rockets staff. Uh, Steven Silas at one point admitted that, oh, I'm, I haven't run anything for Jabari Smith Jr. all year. And this isn't a guy who creates his own shot particularly well. So it's absolutely criminal to take a guy at number three overall in the draft and then not utilize his strengths in any way for the entire season. Uh, but you see what the fantasy floor is because Jabari Smith Jr. was actually pretty good at the rim this year, uh, which was a nice improvement over what we saw from him uh, in two-point range at uh, Auburn. And he can so he can bring that to the table. He can bring strong rebounding, uh, solid block numbers, and he's actually a pretty good free throw shooter. So there's the, the outlines of a really good fantasy player if he's just hitting shots. If he's hitting threes, all of a sudden you see a guy, yes, that could be a top 50 staple across his prime. And I think it really just comes down to getting a competent offense around him that gets him open looks and at least less contested looks than what he was dealing with as a rookie, which was uh, pretty horrid to be able to watch because they just didn't, made no attempt to be able to utilize what this guy does well. Uh, and you saw some flashes near the end of the year. In March, he had some really big games where he all of a sudden started to get some of his confidence back. Um, and he was taking some of those even contested mid-range looks where he could just sky over the defender uh, that we saw so often at Auburn. Those were not falling down. He was hitting some big threes. Um, I think that's that guy's still there. Uh, so if uh, anyone in your league is selling, Jabari Smith Jr., I'm still buying because I think that there's a lot of potential once he's in a competent NBA offense. It just blows my mind when a coach says, yeah, no, we're actually not running our offense at all, any place for the guy we just picked number three overall. I mean, it frustrated me as a Hawks fan when Nate McMillan said it about John Collins after he was a 20-10 and 10 guy and then two seasons later, we actually don't run offense for him. So anyways, a guy that you have in the starting unit you're just not running offense for of course it's going to limit his upside hopefully the next head coach doesn't do that whoever whoever that may be um but if, just one last dynasty question um that i'm just curious about how high i know it depends on where he gets drafted in your dynasty rankings is victor webinyam i think it's probably a difference between charlotte or versus detroit versus utah or wherever he ends up but just generally speaking, as the talent, how high is he right now, having never played an NBA game? 
Well, so this is kind of the, the most important question of the NBA offseason. Um, and I think it's a context dependent one. Uh, when we're talking about categories leagues, the, the upside for Victor Wembanyama is as high as anybody in the NBA. I mean, the stats set, if it comes to its highest end outcomes, he could be a number one overall player in fantasy, in nine cap fantasy uh, for multiple years across his career. We saw this previously with Anthony Davis, and I don't think Davis even necessarily brings everything to the table that Wembanyama could at his highest end outcomes. But that's who Anthony Davis was at his very best because he had an ability to be able to score, but still brought you elite field goal percentage, uh, rebounds, blocks, uh, and and was giving you kind of that rounded nine cat stat set. That's what we're going to get from Wembenyama, someone who could average three blocks a game, and that alone creates such a high floor. Just doing that, if you get three blocks a game, you're already looking at a top 25 player. And add on to that the fact that this guy um, could be a 25, maybe even 30 point per game scorer in the modern NBA. Add on to that that he sh shot the three-pointer uh, this past year at such high volume um, and shooting it off the dribble, above the break. Uh, to do that at such a young age suggests that he has a really high trajectory as a, a three-point shooter. And a guy that is still developing in his ability to pass, but has a lot of touch, uh, sees the game extremely well. So you could see him ending up being a plus assist player on top of that. You know, I'm not even factoring that in when I'm thinking about ranking him right now, but it's possible because he is so good on ball already at such a young age. And we've never really seen anything quite like this before. Uh, so with that, I mean, for me, he's a top five dynasty player in categories leagues uh, right out of the gate. I, I think that the upside alone, the fact that you could have a guy who could have a decade where he's right around the number one player in fantasy. You have to take him in that range, even, even though it's a player archetype that we haven't really seen before. I think it's worth the risk because the upside is so high and the floor is so high. If he's on the court, he's going to be a really good fantasy player. He's going to block a ton of shots. And in nine-category fantasy, you see with players like Miles Turner, you know, with Jaron Jackson Jr., that even if his offensive game only reaches those levels, if he doesn't really pan out as the offensive player that we think, and he's just Miles Turner or Jaron Jackson Jr. offensively, look how high those guys are in nine-category rankings. Um, and then you have the upside beyond that. So it, for me, that makes him easily top five. And I think you can make arguments, you know, between him and Jokic and Doncic and SGA, LaMelo and Bede, those kind of Tatum, those, uh, Halliburton, um, they're all different kinds of arguments. But with all of them, it boils down to what's the floor, what's the ceiling. And I think the answer for Wimbledon for both of those is very high. Um, and I don't buy into the idea that he's necessarily a uh, an injury risk just because of his size. I mean, we saw him stay healthy through the, this entire past season. He did have some injuries before, but you're talking about a teenager playing against grown men. Uh, that doesn't seem unusual to me for him to be able to have some of that. So we will see, but he seems to have a really smart team of people around him who are very concerned with maintaining his flexibility, not putting too much weight on him, and allowing him to be able to continue to develop into his body as an NBA player uh, without putting extra burdens on it that could increase injury risk. So I'm extremely high um, on him in categories leagues and in points leagues, uh, still very high, but maybe not as much so. And I think this is an important differentiation because uh, based on the polling I did, around 35% of people do play in points dynasty leagues if they're playing in dynasty leagues. And sometimes you can give one size fits all categories advice. I would say Wembenyamo is probably a top 10 dynasty player in points leagues because the rebounding alone is such a cheat code in points formats. If you're a 10 plus rebound player, that creates such a high floor. Even if the blocks don't matter as much in points leagues, even if you're getting three points per block, uh, it, they just don't matter as much as they do in categories. 
but I think he still has a really high floor because of this combination of scoring, rebounding, and the blocks that you're going to get from him. He's going to be good in all fantasy formats. He's going to be really fun, and it's going to make the 23-24 season so much fun to watch. Yeah, definitely the most hype around a prospect. Since LeBron, I know I'm excited to see where he ends up. I I want to say in my two 30-team dynasty leagues that are kind of based on how the actual lottery ends up, it's either fourth to Charlotte or maybe seventh and eighth to Washington and Indiana is where I need them to go in order to get my hands on them. But um, I know that probably a lot of people will be very interested to see how that shakes out. But that's going to do it for the dynasty content. Before we go, Matt, it's um, kind of a question I'm asking everyone or playing ask everyone. Uh, if you were giving advice to somebody that was interested in content creation, whether it be dynasty specific, general fantasy, or even you know fantasy basketball, different fantasy sport, what would you give to them? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is that there are no barriers to entry anymore. Um, if you want to start creating content, you can do it today and you can do it inexpensively and start putting it out there. The The only thing that will determine or limit you is how hard you're willing to work at it. Are you willing to put out content daily? Are you willing to engage with people um, you know, daily to be able to create a reputation and a name for yourself in the space? Are you willing to, are you willing to provide something that other people aren't providing or at least that is underserved? try to find those holes. And that, that's ultimately all that I did. Um, you know, I started this kind of in the throes of lockdown in 2020, creating the Fantasy Basketball International Community uh, with Brendan Woodward, my co-founder uh, co of that community. And we just had a bunch of dynasty leagues that and, and redraft leagues that we were hosting and, and working with and had a big community of people that we brought together. Um, and that spawned, you know, taking all of the data that we had from all those different leagues and turning it into ADP for Dynasty Leagues, which, as far as I knew, uh, didn't exist for fantasy basketball. And that kind of created something that fantasy basketball Dynasty Leagues really needed, which was a guideline or a baseline for value. Because I would go into these leagues and people would just get the wool pulled over their eyes by experienced players. Uh, because they didn't have anything to reference to know how valuable a player was. So if they were new to Dynasty, maybe their first experience would be getting ripped off in a few trades. All of a sudden, you know, their team is terrible and they don't have any path forward and they quit on it. Um, and Dynasty can't grow if that's the experience that people have. So I wanted to be able to provide people with the opportunity to be able to have uh, a guideline so that they could come into a league, even as a beginner, and have some idea of player values. Uh, and that's what I've done with ADP, with rankings. Um, and with all the content that I've been putting out. And it's just so encouraging to see new people coming into the space um, and putting out uh, projects like this that you're doing with this podcast. Uh, I'm excited because there are so many great new voices that are coming into it and there's room for more. So if you're interested in creating, whether it's dynasty content, fantasy basketball content, anything else, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I have a lot of thoughts and suggestions on how to do that. And I've been trying to uh, help a lot of people get into the space in recent months and, and it's been successful. So I, I'm excited for the future of all of it. And I'm really excited about the future of this podcast and, and appreciate have you having me on today, Noah. Yeah, man. I mean, you mentioned that you're interested in, you know, helping people out, giving advice, but you've also, I've seen on Twitter multiple times, be very supportive about people. If they're interested in creating content, just tag you, you'll share it. And you mentioned advice. So I uh, were gracious enough to hop on the podcast, which I'm really appreciative of. Uh, Matt, where else? I mean, you mentioned that you do work or that you have Fantasy Basketball International. Uh, what do you have coming up kind of this summer and where can we find it? 
Yeah, it's going to be a pretty exciting stretch for us. Uh, this is the dynasty season. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of things at Fantasy Basketball International. If you go to my Twitter profile, uh, you can find the link to our website, fbibasketball.com. Uh, there you're going to find all of my free dynasty rankings and free content. Uh, on top of that, uh, a lot of stuff from Adam King is one of the top uh, season-long analysts in fantasy basketball. And we're going to continue to put out new things on there. Uh, we're going to start doing our draft guide for the 2023-2024 season. Uh, starting in the next few weeks, Adam's got his early ranks. I'm going to put out some early uh, minutes and rotation projections that will continue to shift as players are added through free agency in the draft. But I think doing this work is just critical at this point of the year, whether you're doing dynasty or season long, to start thinking about where things are headed in the NBA because so much is about to change. Um, you can also find my premium dynasty rankings at patreon.com slash NBA dynasty ADP. Uh, there I'm ranking the 2023 rookie class amongst the veterans. So you can get an idea of how I project their careers. You'll have a projection of their career stat set, what kind of their peak stat set will look like in fantasy, what it, what it looks like to me based on their college or pre-draft production. Um, and that can be really helpful to assess the value of draft picks. Um, that way you have an idea. I have the fourth overall pick. What is that, what is that worth? Is it a top 50 selection? Is it a top 75? And you can get my idea of that on top of projections for all NBA players, uh, notes for all NBA players. Um, and it's a really good resource to be able to understand the value of players in your league. You can find that all on patreon.com slash NBA Dynasty ADP, along with my uh, big board for 2023 NBA draft prospects uh, filled with advanced stats and fantasy projections, uh, really to get you ready for rookie drafts this offseason and the NBA draft as a whole. Um, so we've got a lot coming up, and I'm, I'm even going to be launching um, some podcast content myself, some Dynasty podcast content over on our YouTube channel, the Fantasy Basketball International YouTube channel. You can just search for that and subscribe. Also available wherever you download podcasts as well. Um, so it's going to be a fun off season. I'm really looking forward to it, and hopefully I can get you on a podcast of my own uh, sometime soon, Noah. Absolutely. And you, know, you mentioned your rookie rankings. I know I use them for my rookie draft in my home dynasty league last season and ended up getting me Jeremy Sohan in the second round, which was excellent. Um, so I appreciate that and can definitely testify to the work being excellent. Uh, but that's going to do it for the first episode of the Tank Me Later podcast. Thanks again, Matt, uh, for joining me and thank you everyone for listening. 